Hello and welcome to the Common Room Podcast. Uh, we are recording from beautiful Prague. Today we'll talk about something that's always topical in European politics, namely the enlargement of the European Union. My name is Jeroen. Joining me today in the studio are Victoria. Hi. Alvaro. Hello. Lika. Hi. And Marco. Dobry dan. EU enlargement has always been a very hot topic, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine has really reignited the debate to a number of countries which are between Russia and the EU. Uh, a quick list of countries which are currently either applicants or candidates to the EU. That is Ukraine, Moldova, Montenegro, Albania, North Macedonia, Turkey, Serbia, Georgia, and Bosnia and Herzegovina. And this raises a number of questions. So what are these countries' prospects for EU membership? What are the main barriers to EU enlargement? And perhaps... Where does enlargement end? Speaking of current applicants and candidates, the Western Balkans have been on hold for a while. So one of these countries is Montenegro, and uh, that's why I wanted to ask you, Marco. Montenegro applied to the EU quite a long time ago, in 2008. How does this impact the, the views Montenegrins have of the EU, and also you personally? Thank you, Jeroen, for the introduction. This is a very important topic to me, not only because I would like to have a better passport, more opportunities, and to spend less time of my studies focusing on visa issues and bureaucracy, but also because I believe that Europe, or let's say the European Union as such, as a peace project, as a project of democracy and prosperity, cannot be complete without the Western Balkans and without other countries in the EU neighborhood, uh, most notably uh, Moldova, Georgia and Ukraine. This is something that affects our daily lives, obviously, and the way we are able to study and in general do anything uh, related to our careers uh, in EU member states. When it comes to the views that Montenegrins have about the European Union, there is still a huge number of people supporting the membership. The latest research shows that the number is over 75 percent. However, we have been on hold, as you've said, for a while. Negotiations officially started in 2012, so it's been over a decade of trying to fulfill the standards needed to accede to the European Union, especially in the chapters 23 and 24 related to the rule of law, but it has not been a success story yet. And one additional thing that complicates the situation is the conflicting messages that we are constantly receiving from the European Union and its highest officials. One statement that inspired a lot of enthusiasm and optimism, especially in the Western Balkans, was when Juncker, then the president of the European Commission, said that the Western Balkans may be ready to accede to the European Union by 2025. We are now in 2022, and the Greek Prime Minister Mitsotakis recently said that uh, the accession of the Western Balkans needs to happen as a package by 2033. So we are constantly jumping from one decade to another without an actual clear perspective of whether there is political will for the European Union to finally implement another enlargement after Croatia joining in 2013. To conclude, I would say I do not believe that all of the countries which are candidates right now are ready to be member states of the European Union, and that's why I'm fairly against the so-called package enlargements. I do not believe that the Western Balkans as a whole need to become member states of the European Union at once. Every country needs to become so when it fulfills all of the conditions and when it is genuinely politically and legally ready to do so. But since there are countries indeed, and I would add my own there, which are maybe not necessarily immediately ready, but are really in the zone where we can realistically think about further final reforms to become member states, at this point in time with a situation like that, the EU needs to send a signal once and for all, are we having 
an enlargement in the future or not, because if we are not, that creates a geopolitical vacuum. And then the officials in Brussels might need to think about the role of Russia and China filling that vacuum, which is being created by an absolute confusion coming from Brussels. What do you think the main uh, obstacles are to, uh, for example, Montenegro's EU membership? I would say that the number one issue which is uh, causing problems in the country is corruption and the lack of standards regarding the rule of law. One of the reasons for that situation, and it's probably interesting for people who are listening and who did not know of that fact, we had one government for 30 years and that government lost power for the first time in 2020. And before those 30 years, we were part of the communist Yugoslavia, which I don't need to explain in terms of the rule of law standards and democracy. So there has been a continuous period of a lack of standards and an absolute lack of democratic capability. But in the recent years, especially, even though the new governments that came into power did not really do much to improve the situation in general, there was a level of democratization of the country, which was serious. There is some prosecutorial work going on right now. And there has been sets of reforms in the past years that have been going on, but without decisive steps in terms of the rule of law and democracy, accession is not possible. And one of the issues that we are facing right now is an institutional blockage. We cannot agree to elect judges of the Constitutional Court, which is the highest legal instance in the country, partially due to the EU, because the EU was the one that demanded constitutional reform in 2013, whereas a two-thirds majority of the parliament would be needed for judges to the highest judicial post. So thanks to that kind of a mechanism, right now we are in an institutional blockage because no one wants to agree on anyone who could get that kind of a majority. But yeah, institutional reforms, rule of law, corruption, those are the key issues. But I do believe that we can solve them, provided we actually get an incentive of a statement and uh, a political approach saying, you will exceed if you fulfill these conditions, because we are ready and willing to commit to an enlargement. I would actually like to react to one of the points that Marco brought up. And it's the fact that package deals, package uh, enlargement is not effective. Right now we face a situation where Ukraine and Moldova are kind of in the same camp. And EU has clearly stated that if the admission is going to happen, it's going to be happening at the same time for both of the countries. And it creates a lot of complications for Ukraine, first of all, because right now government put the EU admission of Ukraine as a number one priority. So everyone in the government is working on that implementing all of the necessary reforms. And we have the political will and political capacity right now to move towards joining the EU much faster than Moldova that is facing internal political crisis. And with the package deals that is very unclear and clearly formulated, it might be very hard for the country to actually go through the next round of election and keep the pro-European government. So it creates a situation for us that Ukraine will probably be moving much faster, but Moldova will be slowing us down. So there isn't this unclear kind of possible conflictual situation. I totally agree that package enlargement is not something we should focus on. It's of course an interesting question why the EU would insist on these packages if it's only, if it only makes the process more complicated. Do you think there's like a strategic motivation behind it? Why would the EU want these package deals? I guess to give the impression that the EU is not leaving anyone behind in certain geographical areas, for example Spain and Portugal, so the Iberian Peninsula, enter the EU at the same time after we in Spain and Portugal as well had undergone a democratization process and had Portugal entered the EU before Spain that would have given Spain perhaps the wrong impression 
And if I'm trying to be in the head of EU bureaucrats in the DG of enlargement, I guess you're trying to avoid giving that impression. But as Marco said, you also have to think of incentives. Uh, so it's it's a hard question. Yeah, I would agree like geopolitical and geographical factor is one. But I also think that this is a, because of like shared past, uh, for example, about Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia, like same, same Soviet past. After uh, the like, collapse of Soviet Union, we have the same problems. So we can share our experiences. It can be one point. And we can make like, the shared civic societies that can help us to improve our governance, our involvement and our engagement. But at the same time, as Victoria said, for example, right now, Ukraine is more maturated. Maybe then Moldova is, I can say the same from 2015 to 2019. Georgia was one of the forefronters in the Rose trio. So we were saying the same, like we are the more like leaders of this trio, but depends on the time you were talking about. So uh, yeah, it's complicated to say, oh, these kind of like trios or geopolitical um, packages, uh, okay or not. It's a general problem of the EU to treat the Eastern European region as one integrated political entity. So many countries are perceived as those that have the same goals and move to those goals at the same speed, but it's clearly not true. And it's also visible in how the new criteria, nine months for Moldova and seven for Ukraine were formulated. They are really broad. For example, one of them is fighting the corruption and the other one is increasing the involvement of civil society in decision making. And there is no way to evaluate them in the same way or even make it at least a little bit not politically motivated. So it might play for the best for both of the countries, but also if the political momentum of the accession, for example, passes, then it might be a very huge obstacle of how the European countries are going to be assessing our progress towards the European Union. And just to reflect additionally on this issue of a package enlargement, even though it pains me to say it because I believe in my region and I believe that the Western Balkans are a part of Europe and can be there, but regardless of such a view, I have to say that on the example of Serbia and Montenegro, we see why package enlargement is an absurdity. In Serbia right now, they have what is labeled by reports such as Freedom House Report hybrid regime. And essentially, if you ask me, it's an authoritarian state, which is even in its official foreign policy pro-Russian, it is the only country besides Belarus in Europe to not impose sanctions on Russia. Also, when you look at public opinion polls, there is a record low of support for EU membership and record high numbers of support towards the Eurasian integration and also uh, closer relations to Russia. Another question that is often asked in opinion polls in Serbia is, do you support sanctions towards Russia? And the majority, a vast majority of the population is against the sanctions. So you not only have a polity that is strongly, not just pro-Russian, but anti-democratic, essentially, you have a lot of citizens who are sharing the same sentiments. And then that translates, obviously, in the minds of some politicians of the EU, okay, but these two countries are at the same level, even though one has 100% alignment with EU foreign policy, the other one has even half, or maybe not that, but they should be accepted together because they're part of one region. And then if they all come together, it's a fairy tale. And we finally integrated one full region that we always talk about as a singularity. And that is unfair because we also in Montenegro look at those things and see them as an unfair treatment of us who have been genuinely working hard to implement reforms. And then we see someone who is sliding into authoritarianism 
yet they get the same treatment. And also when you look at the institutional structure in Brussels, there was one controversial moment, at least for us controversial, when the offices dealing with Serbia and Montenegro were joined as one, which is another aspect of us constantly being treated as a package. And it's fairly speaking on a personal note, frustrating, it's unfair. And also in the example of the Eastern European countries, I would agree Moldova and Ukraine cannot be treated as one because they are on different levels and Moldova has many internal issues which can also be on the long run an obstacle which could prevent the speeding up of the process. So yeah, to conclude, I really think that package negotiations and accession prospects are, I can say, ridiculous, honestly, because it's it's really absurd and it doesn't make sense. It seems like which countries are considered fit by the EU to become an EU member state can really shift quite a lot. And it can lead to like feelings of unfairness. And I think talking about the situation in Ukraine right now, I feel like a lot of people, at least in my experience in Western Europe, kind of have this perception that Ukraine is kind of being fast-tracked into the EU. If you kind of consider the history of like, the EU and Ukraine, to what extent is that actually like a correct interpretation of what is happening with Ukraine? I think it's actually a very fair statement because EU had unclear intentions about Ukraine and Eastern Europe in general for many decades. We've been striving to join the EU and to deepen the integration for years. And the best format that we got offered is Eastern Partnership, which was, in my opinion, not really effective, um, especially considering the goals that it put ahead of itself. So, for example, uh, the structure of Eastern Partnership was basically offering the mechanisms of enlargement, but without the clear intention to let the countries actually join if they reach a certain standard. So that's why the frontrunners that uh, later form, um, created this as associated trio, Moldova, Georgia and Ukraine, always preferred the bilateral track instead of the Eastern Partnership mechanism, because the instruments that the European Union was putting forward were clearly not helping the countries to actually move towards joining the EU. They were helping a little bit in some incentives like getting the non-visa policy or integrating the markets a little bit more. But it was creating many obstacles as those goals were achieved because after there was a lot of political vacuum and this inability to decide what comes next. So yeah, I think that granting us the candidate status is really a result of the political momentum and war helped a lot. And I think it's just the heroism of Ukrainian nation that convinced the EU countries to finally see that at some point in history we will be the member of the European Union and it just depends on when the European Union makes up its mind. But if we have a look at EU enlargement history and at the EU history in and of itself, even though at the beginning the main idea was to have economic integration, access to the EU has always been a political issue and we can think of Great Britain uh, at first, but of course we have the example of Turkey and I can even talk about Morocco, which asked to be a member of the European Union in, I think, the 70s. It's the only country that has been rejected to being an applicant, and that's because EU countries decided to define accession to the European Union with that one prerequisite, and that is being a European country, and what does that mean? 
Turkey has been a candidate country forever and it will probably remain. So, of course, even though there are all these criteria and all these chapters that candidate countries have to fill, I guess we have to be very conscious that it will always be political and it will be always in the hands of those countries that are already member states. And I guess that if we have a look at the EU today, some countries, some EU members that are already part of the club, and I'm thinking of course of Poland and more importantly Hungary, are not doing others a favor by how they're dealing with rule of law issues and many other issues that are making things much more complicated for countries outside the EU because it's making the other member states way more worried of how will other countries integrate and behave once they're inside. Ukraine and Moldova were both accepted as candidate countries, but that position was denied to uh, Georgia. So how exactly does that factor into Georgia-EU relations? Yeah, as I mentioned before, from 2015 to 2019, like Georgia was the leader country of this trio. But uh, after this 2019, Georgia experienced, I would say, democratic backsliding. Since the last three years, uh, I would say, if like four years ago, Georgia was a top in like uh, rule of law, the corruption um, uh, indicators. Now it's getting like lower and lower. So it of course uh, creates this environment that gives the EU these uh, leverages over Georgia to say no to candidate status. Uh, and uh, what happened actually in Georgia? When the war started, Georgia was a country who said that no, we are not going to join sanction against Russia. We of course ensure the sanctions to be fulfilled, but no, we are not participating in these sanctions. We have to be careful. We had experienced war before, so the rhetoric and the speech was full of these sentiments that we are uh, we have to be like, careful. After this, uh, of course, uh, we saw that Ukraine applied, and as far as we were in the same industry, we also applied. Uh, but to be honest, like the civic society, the um, opposition parties, and the general people were pretty sure that we would not be granted the, the candidate status because of these things what government did and this kind of like polarization we have in our country. So we, yeah, we were, were not be granted the, the candidate status, but we um, received the European perspective. So I would mention that, for example, like months and a year ago, we would not ima even imagine that we would be granted even European perspective. We're trying to apply for the EU membership in 2024. So we were trying to be ready for 2024. But it happened like accidentally. It happened because of this, uh, the war in Ukraine. So we were trying to be in the same direction, but unfortunately we did not get it. Uh, and actually going back to the point of treating the three countries as the same, or as an integrated kind of political entity. Um, when Moldova and Georgia also asked for the candidate status, it was actually uh, perceived as something very negative by the Ukrainians, by the population and the government, because it was quite obvious that Georgia is clearly not ready to be granted the candidate status, and Moldova was kind of in the middle. And there was kind of a political debate on how that will influence our accession in the future. Because it was quite obvious that the EU will want Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia to move at the same speed. But it's clearly impossible in real life. And therefore, it created a lot of tension between those three countries in terms of just politics. And again, turning back to the point of Georgia not directly supporting Ukraine in the war in terms of sanctions. It just created this negativity between the populations of the country as well as between the political elites. So that was a very reckless move by the European Union, in, in my opinion. 
Yeah, uh, I think Georgia lost this progress what we made through these years, and that's why the Ukrainians had this impression, and it was like quite fair because when you hear from the, your like neighbor country, your partner country, that we are not going to join these sanctions, of course, this impression gonna be in your uh, society. But yeah, I have to mention that this is not about population, this is not about people, because like. 76% of Georgians um, are uh, pro-European, they want to join the EU, and that the majority of people just support Ukraine, but this was the government who created this kind of impression that Georgia is a country who is not who is not supporting Ukraine, but they are uh, trying to play this um, careful game with Russia. And also, I will mention this uh, the government role in this uh, decision. Uh, since the war started, uh, this kind of propaganda and narrative was spread in Georgia, that the European Union and the EU tried Georgia to be involved in a war, encouraging Georgians to open the second front in Georgia against uh, Russia. So it's quite like nonsense and an absurd statement. Uh, but of course, it played a role in the EU decision because when there's a country who wants to join you and at the same time you are blaming and accusing them, I would say that the role of government, the main um, part of this decision, but of course, this rule of law problems, this freedom of expression and the uh, judiciary system also was uh, the main points, but the government role was the biggest, I would say. I think we can link this back to the Western Balkans, and I'm curious what Marco thinks about what I'm going to say, because I feel like it's the same with Serbia, because Serbia had made all this progress towards EU membership and towards European integration, but has now changed its course. And I feel from the EU perspective, you don't want to neglect all that process and you don't want to, you don't want to feel like you're losing Serbia. And we mentioned already that if the EU membership process does not advance, we, we may have China influence, we may have Russian influence. And I feel like the whole idea behind the packages, and I'm trying to play devil's advocate here, <laughs> is that we don't want to lose those countries. And if we perhaps give accession to Montenegro first, we may lose Serbia forever. Because that's... Uh, <laughs> I'm seeing Marco. <laughs> sorry. I had to. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Don't worry, don't worry. So I feel from the EU perspective, if we grant accession to Montenegro and not to Serbia, we may lose Serbia forever. And that may be the rationale behind all these packages. I don't know what you think, Marco. No, I agree with the possibility of that being kind of a rationale behind everything. And also one reason why the EU keeps on clinging on to Serbia is Kosovo. Kosovo is an open issue and it's one of the biggest issues in Europe, I would say right now, uh, considering also the territorial aspect of the issue, because, you know, always anything related to borders and border disputes constitutes huge political crises traditionally all across Europe. And then the issue of Kosovo comes in. There's one theory that is often kind of perpetuated in the Western Balkans, and that is that there's a deal between Serbia and the EU for Serbia to recognize Kosovo as an independent state and be granted almost immediately not only the closing benchmarks, but the actual accession towards the European Union. It is idealist in a way because the European Union needs to reach a consensus and we have Croatia sitting in the European Council and it's not going to be easy to convince the Croatian Prime Minister to vote in favor of Serbia joining the EU because they have a lot of bilateral disputes to solve beforehand. However, I think this could ex explain the dynamics a bit and it's also one aspect that 
again, bothers me. I do understand it as someone studying political science and often being involved with geopolitics from a geopolitical standpoint. It is a logical thing from the EU to do, but it's still frustrating to use a shortcut towards achieving the recognition of Kosovo's independence. So in order for you to have your issue of Kosovo solved, you will grant on the other way Serbia the accession to the EU that it wants. Then Serbia gets access to a large internal market and then its government can further benefit from that. I don't believe that it's as easy as it sounds and I don't think that that will be the dynamic within the member states because as I've said before, it's not going to be easy to agree on that. And the second thing that I just wanted to mention, especially being a bit motivated when I heard, especially Victoria mentioning the wrong moves of the EU, another wrong move, which is another issue in the sphere of mixed signals, is the Open Balkan Initiative. I don't know how many people heard of that, but the Open Balkan Initiative is basically an internal market strategy pushed forward by Albania and Serbia, which means that there will be a significant level of the extension of economic freedoms between Western Balkans countries in order to create a fully integrated internal market with all of the economic freedoms and the freedom of movement especially that exists within the EU's internal market. And that is an absolutely weird initiative because as part of the negotiations with the EU we already have the Berlin process and we already have initiatives which strive towards the Western Balkans creating an internal market, and then Serbia and Albania, due to their own geopolitical aspirations and, fairly speaking, economic and other forms of nationalism, they wanted this alternative method of integration, and the only result from that being they get additional leverage. And then, when you ask EU officials, is this what you support, you have Varheli, as always, going on his own press tours, giving his own opinions, And then other officials in Brussels saying, no, we have the Berlin process. And still to this very day, I don't know what to tell to those who are listening because we don't know yet whether the EU supports open Balkans. It is, as I've said, the word might be too simplistic, but it's a weird initiative because we already have the goal of establishing all of that and we already have the legal framework. And now there are these countries pushing for an alternative openly supported by the person in the European Commission who is dealing with enlargement and neighborhood. And also, to sum up, another initiative of that sort could be the European political community pushed forward by Macron. It's another very vague idea which kind of sheds light on this topic of the EU closing its door and finding sort of a way out through alternative initiatives. I personally still have not figured out what the actual point of the European political community is, uh, other than the nice photos they took in Prague when the summit was happening. But maybe someone can enlighten me. I think that's a very interesting point you mentioned about that internal market, because in the discussion we had previously, it was quite clear that the main motivations for wanting to join the EU or for the EU wanting to expand were very geopolitical. But there's also an economic aspect to it. And I think there's one question we haven't really considered yet, which is a very basic question. In why do countries even want to join the EU? Because, for example, in the context of geopolitics, it might make more sense to want to join NATO, which, for example, Ukraine wants as well, I believe. Um, so how does that relate to the EU? What, what do you think the motivations are for countries to want to join the EU? That's a really loaded question, to be honest. There's a lot of reasons. First of all, it's a cultural proximity, I would say. Like we Ukrainians, I could speak for Ukraine, perceive ourselves as European. So that's just striving to rejoin our home, historical home, basically. This is, I think, the main 
motivation on the personal level. On the level of the country, and especially country safety, is a geopolitical issue. And I think the point that I really want to make here is that the EU has to give up on trying to please Russia, because the main issue with the integration of the Eastern European states and South Caucasus states is that EU is constantly scared of doing something to provoke Russia. And at this point, there is no way to provoke Russia more. We are at the point of an actual full-scale war. And this is not the first war that is happening in the region. We had Georgia in 2008, and we had Ukraine in 2014 when the war started. So EU has been playing this very dangerous game of trying to be somewhere in the middle, and again, creating this political vacuum that is, for example, was trying to be filled by the Eurasian Economic Union that Russia was very actively promoting since 2009, I think, till basically this day. So I think why we want to join is really a question of our own safety, because attacking a European state and attacking a state in between Europe and Eurasia is two very different things. It's hard to add like more things, but the EU is now like more shaping not only economic but also political and also security union. So that's why almost eighty percent of Georgian population is driving to the EU. Of course, first is economic because the Georgia is, I would say, not the poorest but poor country. So we want more uh, place to work. We want like more education. I would say also that the joining the EU should not be like the goal for goal. It should be the mean and the tool to improve yourself and your country. And also, I want to mention. We always talk about like why these countries want to join you, but I also want to add why the EU should want us to be joined. Since the EU want to weaken its dependence on Russia, Georgia is a quite good place to use for like transit this gas and oil from the Caspian Sea, from Azerbaijan to the European countries. We have border with the Black Sea, so of course there are ports, seaports, which can be more used for uh, transferring loads from Asian countries to the Europe. So I would say this uh, also should be mentioned many times why the EU should want the other countries to be joined. Yeah, and I think that it's fair to mention that leaving these countries in between is just preserving the instability at the EU eastern borders for even longer. And EU already failed Belarus, which is now a fully authoritarian, totalitarian, even regime in Europe, basically. So there's already this point of instability for many decades ahead. I'm not really optimistic in the case of Belarus. And leaving Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova behind again will in the nearest future most likely create the same situation as we have now. So EU has to finally develop this clear geostrategical vision of its role on the Eurasian continent and in the world in general, and it has to start with the accession of the Eastern European countries into it. There's no way around. And I think it's worth to mention that the European Union really changed its politics towards the Eastern European countries since 2008, I would say. I think that you learned somehow from this war in uh, Georgia, but not... Uh, as good as after um, the war in Ukraine again in 2014, because they intensified their sanctions against Russia, but they needed like 10 years the more to um, understand that Russia is not the country you should negotiate. I think now they are trying to intensify their engagement and involvement in South Caucasian and Eastern European countries, but uh, it needs more. Yeah, and in essence, uh, the geopolitical argument that often made before that you should move east to like provoke Russia can't make an argument anymore. Even if you look, come from that view, Russia has become incredibly aggressive. So I think that the only arguments that can be had about membership are economic, for example, or procedural or about corruption and stuff. So it's very interesting how kind of reality has also forced the EU to kind of shift the debate. Yeah, if we reflect on how the war 
is being is shaping this debate because we we have been talking about accession and the war was there but we haven't really talked about it and if we were having this conversation just a year ago it would have been so much different because for the past decade the EU has been very much not thinking about EU enlargement and that's because we have had to deal with issues at home i am coming from one of the countries that had to deal with mainly economic issues and of course the eu works very well as this entity where we can all project our desires and our our wantings uh, for our countries but we have to remember that it was mainly an economic union and it is only now the war that it is becoming something else of course it was there in the making but the war has forced the european union to change so much that I guess we are stepping into the unknown and it will take some time. It will take some time. And also we need to recognize that in this process, many countries who are candidates gave up so much in order to fulfill certain requirements by the European Union. One really notable example is North Macedonia, which used to be named uh, Macedonia a few years ago, but changed its name in order to de-block itself from Greece in the first place. Now Bulgaria was unhappy, again due to historical and cultural reasons, and North Macedonia adopted further constitutional amendments in order to recognize everything that was demanded from Bulgaria. This sparked incredible internal tensions and nationalist even violence in North Macedonia. So there are these countries doing so much and giving up on so many politically vital issues, internally speaking, and still the European Council convenes and there are some heads of state and government which are still not, not happy enough because they found a new historical argument that they would like to be fulfilled before accession can happen. And also I would just get back to what Victoria was saying in the context of Ukraine because it matches with Montenegro. So we feel European deeply. Back at the Berlin Congress of 1878, we were internationally recognized as an independent state with our statehood being centuries before that present in the European political sphere. On the 13th of July 1941, we as such a small country organized the biggest popular uprising against fascism in Europe. We have always been part of the continent. Um, we have always been European in many ways of our thinking, even though many would disagree with this probably from some EU member states. But the mindset that we have is that we belong to this project. And also, let's remove all of these preconditions aside and ask the questions, does the EU as a peace project stand viable if it does not include all of these countries that we have been talking about? Because let's go into the future a bit. We don't know what's going to happen in terms of the outcome of the invasion of Ukraine. We know what we hope for, but we don't know what is going to happen. Russia is going to stick around, at least for a while. We have China growing ever stronger and also monopolizing internally in terms of power being connected to a very specific circle of individuals. And also China is growing more aggressive geopolitically. This is only going to, to cause further geopolitical, military, also security issues in the future. And can the European space as such survive without full integration of all of the countries? Even if we say that all or certain countries are still not ready for accession, we should at least give some thought to idea of differential integration, which I think is a very interesting approach to European integration, which basically means if a country is ready in terms of its 
economic development and embeddedness of its economic rules and institutions into the European uh, sphere of the internal market, then let's integrate the country a bit further economically and allow its citizens some freedoms that would not normally be reserved to non-EU countries. If you don't want to integrate, the countries at least offer some partial integration in some sectors, which would still make the lives of the people easier. Because we as students are constantly struggling with things such as visas. And right now, our second semester is approaching sooner or later. Some people can only think about when are they going to move. And some of us need to think about, okay, can I get my papers to move And then once I get my papers to move, I can actually move. And you already have to even think about the summer. Okay, I'm moving to Spain. It's a very difficult visa procedure. I have to deal with that again. And I'm not saying, okay, give visa-free access to everyone, but at least facilitate something so that the lives of the people are easier because our countries are giving up quite a lot to become member states of the EU. And also we are doing all of this with the EU officials constantly demanding, even privately sometimes, things from us and we are fulfilling everything and even we've we've had members of the European Parliament come to Montenegro and say what kind of a government they want so we even fulfill things that breach our sovereignty absolutely in terms of getting dictates of what governments should look like so if we do all of this there should be at least some response and incentive because a vacuum is being created as we've been saying and we don't know what's going to happen with it And I think this approach might actually work really well in terms of Georgia, because like we clearly don't know what's going to be happening with integration between Georgia and the EU, because the Eastern Partnership clearly lost its significance at this point. Ukraine and Moldova moved on, Belarus suspended its participation, which is a tragedy, again, in geopolitical sense, and Armenia and Azerbaijan were never really interested in full-on integration. So Georgia is kind of left behind, and as well, associated trio fell apart, because again, it was left behind. So how is the EU going to bridge this gap between Georgia and the EU that just came to to its existence? And I think this approach that Marco just suggested might actually be the key solution here, because Georgia also had to give up a lot. Like when the country was signing the deep and comprehensive trade agreements, it was really incompatible with the country's economy at the time. And signing this agreement actually created job losses and some of the sectors of the economy, they suffered a lot because they had to change the rules in the country completely to match this uh, expectation from the European Union. So again, if Georgia is making so many sacrifices, what does the EU do? At the moment, it doesn't do much. So as the EU is definitely thinking more geopolitically, or at least we're kind of all arguing that the EU should act more geopolitically, does it mean we should think differently about what European integration looks like? For example, there are already countries right now in the EU which, for example, do not have the euro or do not participate in certain aspects of European integration and do in others. Is that a, the, the way forward, especially thinking about integrating new countries into the EU? I think what Marco was proposing for EU candidate countries, that they would sort of have a two-speed process already being played out within the EU. We're seeing a debate over how countries could come together and integrate further on certain issues, as you just mentioned, that's already the case with the euro, but it could be the case also for defense, for security, or we definitely have the climate issue where some countries are more conscious and more eager to act. And I think this will become a thing within integration within the EU, but it could also work out for countries outside. As Marco was saying, we need to give something when countries outside the EU are giving up so much, 
at some point we need to give them something back or they will just lose hope and turn to somebody else. It seems very clear that discussions about EU enlargement are not just about these countries which are trying to become member states of the EU, but they really hit at the heart of what the EU is about and how the EU should be structured itself. On that note, are there any final remarks about this topic? Uh, yes, to this I would like to add that the EU clearly has to make up its mind on what the EU should be like in the future. Because even right now with the accession of Ukraine, which is a highly debated political issue and there is this political momentum, it's already becoming unclear. So our Prime Minister stated that we would like to fulfill all of the criteria by the end of 2024, which is very ambitious, but I feel like there is a possibility that we will actually achieve this goal. And we were striving towards starting the uh, negotiations with the EU about the actual accession, which is the next uh, step after being granted candidacy in the second half of 2023. And at first, EU was agreeing, and there, that was not an issue. There was a lot of support. But right now, it's already being pushed by the end of 2024, which prolongs the process for us for another year, which I think is quite tragic considering the situation and how much the Ukrainian population wants to be the part of the European Union. So the first thing that we need to consider as people who are in Europe studying European politics is what is the aspiration of the EU towards those countries and what has to be done internally in the European Union to actually grant those nations who really want to be a part of it a fair solution. What I can say uh, on a more personal note, and I know it might sound cheesy, but we really, at least at home, get really emotional when we talk about the EU because it's becoming such a dream even. And by every year, it's becoming more of a dream, more of a utopia, less of a reality, which also causes additional strain on us and our uh, enthusiasm towards the whole EU accession process. And I would say when I spend time in an EU member state or live as I'm doing right now in the Czech Republic studying at Charles University, I do see values, I do see institutions, I do see reforms, I do see progress that we can achieve and that we are not that drastically far from. So there is a space for improvement, of course, but we really see ourselves as part of Europe and we are making progress towards on a more political and legal side actually being able to be considered a part of Europe. And I mean, when we see what is happening right now with Russia's invasion, when we see what's happening in general with the lack of democratic standards in Europe, the conclusion is we cannot survive as Europeans without a project for peace, for democracy, for stability. And if that project doesn't include everyone, it's practically like it's not including anyone because there will always be problems caused in these geopolitical vacuums that we have been mentioning so much, which are caused because the EU just simply cannot make up its mind. And I know that we have now with Italy, a first or one of the first far-right governments, basically, and there's going to be more when that comes from. We have Hungary, we have Poland. It's difficult to achieve internal unity when you have countries that also might have an interest in the EU collapsing, but that is the only way forward. If the EU does not show unity and strategic orientation towards the candidates, there are going to be huge problems in the future. And there is space, so as again we've said many times, bureaucrats in Brussels should definitely make up their mind, and also heads of state, governments, national institutions should make up their mind. Is this European project alive? Does it have a future? Are we going towards enlargement? 
or is the future of the EU a future of debates between the current member states and Hungary and Poland, most notably Hungary, on what should be done internally? Because if the latter is the future of the EU, then we might not actually want to be part of it. Let's be glad that the future is still open. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank everyone for listening and until next time.